Hello and welcome to this edition of the Conversations from the ANF Network. In this episode, I speak to Susan Vickers, and she shares her story of growing up as a transracial adoptee in the 70s and 80s. Susan experienced ongoing racism and a challenging relationship with her adoptive parents. She then went on to reconnect with her biological parents with complex outcomes. Susan has written two books charting this experience, Love Susan and Adoption Reality, and I'm Not a Packy, and they offer a unique insight into her experience and life. As always, if you've experienced of adoption, fostering or special guardianship from any perspective, personal or professional, and would like to share that on the podcast, please get in touch through the Facebook page, the app formerly known as Twitter, or you can email us at anfpodcast at gmail.com. My name's Susan Vickers. I am a broadcaster, a um, author now, which sounds really odd using those terms these days. And I am an adoptee and I'm an advocate for adoption. My story begins in Wolverhampton. It still remains in Wolverhampton, to be honest. My mother and father, my biological mother and father, it sounds very romantic and it probably was at the time, but in hindsight, it probably not so much. They um, met, fell in love, all those wonderful things that we all remember from one of our first loves. My biological mother was as white as you could get, blonde hair, blue eyes, very, very pale. My biological father was full Asian, full Indian. Um, they met, fell in love, run off, got married, become pregnant with me, young love and so on. Um, everyone was fine. I'm on my mother's side. She'd already got a son um, by a white guy who was being looked after by her mother because she was very young. She was 16, 17 when she had him. Um, but then when my father's parents found out about me, being very, very religious, they were Sikhs, everything changed and they're like no 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 you can't do this you we need you to marry one of our own da, 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 and and so on whether they anticipated that fallout or just thought we'll just run off and do it or they was just so head struck in love i don't know um but it wasn't accepted my biological mother pamela even tried to convert she used to wear saris and go to the temple to try and you know become one of their family but they wouldn't have it my biological family's family was very very religious on my father's side they even lived in a temple in Wolverhampton so it wasn't accepted then and it it's difficult to find out exactly what the truth is when you do search because you only know what people tell you Whereas today we've got phones and all kinds of things. There's much more evidence if these things happen today. But back then in 1970, it wasn't like that. So my mother adored, absolutely worshipped my father. Anything he said she would do. If he'd have said jump off a cliff, I'm pretty sure she would have done. But he said, well, you know, we've got no money. We haven't really got anywhere to live. So let's put Susan up for adoption. It takes two years to adopt somebody these days. So that gives us time to sort ourselves out that we can get her back before she's adopted. Um, Pamela, my biological mother, was like, mm, OK, then, because she loved him so much. Unaware that he had no intentions of getting me back. And uh, just said what he needed to say to to change the situation. He basically 
Well, it said that he took me up social services and left me there. Now, we all know that's not, it's not that easy. You both have to sign the forms and all that kind of thing. But that was the story. So I was put out to foster at three months. I was fostered by an all-white family in Wolverhampton. And this was the days straight after the swinging 60s. So there was a lot of mixed race children in care at that time. So this is 1970. And they couldn't find placements for a lot of mixed race kids back then. But my mum, my adopted mum, had a child of her own. She was happily married, had a child of her own to a white father, white child. Couldn't have any more children, but she loved kids. So she's like, I don't care what colour they are. Bring them to me. I'll look after them all. She didn't care. She was very free and open and, and everything. And it was great. She fostered all kind, all races. Um, and everybody was like, oh, aren't you doing a good thing? Look at you adopting all these, fostering all these kids that nobody wants and so on. She was just angelic. And when she found out that I was being put up for adoption, she was, well, we'll adopt her. She loved me. My dad loved me. They asked um, their daughter, my sister, do you want a sister? She was like, no, but it didn't matter. They still wanted to adopt me. As soon as word got out or they told other family members that they was going to adopt me, everything changed. They're like, hold on. So, yeah, it's nice you looking after all these kids nobody wants, but now we're going to have a mixed race person as a legal part of our family. They're like, no, no, you're going to have nothing but trouble having one of those. That was what her sister said at the time. People in the street stopped talking to her. The looks going over to the shops when they look at my mom, my dad, my sister, and then see me as a brown person. The, the frowns, the, the curiosity and so on. Um, back then, she, if you remember, we're a similar sort of age, but if you remember in the 70s and 80s, National Front was rife. All over the country, there was riots. There was all kinds of things. And if you were white, you were white. If you had black skin, you were black. But if you had brown skin, you were a Paki, regardless of whether you was Indian, Pakistani, Portuguese, Italian, whatever it might be. If you had brown skin, you were a Paki. That's all people knew. They, I was luckily today we were more informed. Back then, people didn't know an Italian person looked like or whatever. So um, growing up. At primary school and certainly into high school, I just got bullied so much. The family got so many problems because it was on an all-white estate in Wolverhampton. There was two Jamaican families and, and me. And and still today, the estate is very, very racist. It's, what, it's widely known. So we had graffiti outside the house. My sister was being beaten up at school, being called a packy lover. I couldn't make friends because they would get abused. And it was just awful and awful time and back then if you had this color skin you were going to blow people up you you smelt you get curry you did all these negative things in people's minds so people hated you I didn't understand because obviously I was very young I thought it was dirt I'd be coming on with a nail brush trying to scrub it off and and people saying you're eating too much chocolate or do you use brown soap all these kind of things and my mum and dad didn't know how to deal with that they haven't got the training that they have today they had nothing back then it was well there's your family take that's another one off the list <laughs> and you were just left to it 
Luckily today, things are a lot different. There's still a long way to go, but things are a lot different. So all my mum and dad knew to say when I was coming home, saying I'm being called a packy, I'm being called this and that, and I'm having things thrown at me, and oh, just ignore it, just ignore it. That's all they could say. You're not a packy. That's all my mum could say because I wasn't packy, short for Pakistani. I was Indian or half Indian. I don't know that term either, but I was half Indian. So all she could say was, "But you're not a packy. You're not." So all I kept saying to everybody else was. I'm not a packy, I'm not a packy. That's where the title of the first book comes from. Um, so whenever there was curry or anything spicy being served at school dinners, everybody was, oh, aren't you having that, Susan? Oh, all this curry, Susan, I'll be happy. Never touched it. So I tried to distance myself from being Asian at all. I didn't understand it. All I knew about it was it was a negative thing. People hated packies as such. Um but I didn't have any support. My parents didn't have any support. And I think because of that, my mum wanted to adopt a child because uh, she loved kids. She, in her head, didn't sign up for all this racism and all this backlash that she was getting and everybody in the family was getting. And something changed in her, which I didn't recognise until you get to an age and you look back. Yeah. I don't want to take away from the fact that what my mum did was a, a positive thing. It was a good thing. She wanted to help all these children in care. But then she didn't know how to deal with it. And then she ended up becoming resentful, I think, because of all this stuff that was happening. And she she just ended up being this tyrant of discipline. And it was it was too much. Uh, I was treated completely differently from my sister, from their own biological child. Didn't recognise it at the time, you know, because you're young and you just get on with things. But she became very, very strict. She would physically abuse me as in, you know, whacking me with that you had slippers back then or sticks or whatever it may be. I accidentally knocked a cup of coffee over one, I think I was about nine or ten. She made me stand outside naked in the snow in the back garden and she everything just changed and I didn't once feel loved. I didn't once feel wanted. I didn't, was never told I was loved. There was no affection. There was no hugging. There was none of that that a lot of families do today. But a lot of families don't have that. So I, I get that. And then when it came to me becoming a teenager and you start understanding what it means to be adopted, because I was told very, very young, but I didn't understand it. So I kind of grew with it. It wasn't one of those situations where you went looking for papers and then you find your adoption certificates because that must be heartbreaking. So I didn't have that. But when you understand, so you're not my mum and dad. What, what does, well, who is then? And so who am I? If I'm not your real daughter, who, who am I? And you start asking all these questions. And so I started rebelling a little bit because I was, I just felt like I wasn't wanted. And I ran away from home when I was 13, 14, um, in the hope that I could find my biological parents and they'd live in this big, posh mansion of a house, have loads of money and loads of love and welcome me back into the fold. And, and that didn't happen. I got as far as Birmingham. I thought I was in London, but so it was all a nightmare. Ended up in care. I wouldn't go home. Um, so I ended up in a care home. My mum and dad came to visit me. And the care home that I was put in wasn't a normal children's home. It was a place, almost like a holding centre for kids that 
were naughty kids that were waiting to go to court because they'd done something terrible. And they didn't have family coming to visit them. So I realised, actually, I must be lucky because I have got my family coming to, to, to visit me. And I ended up going back home. But things were even worse then because now I'm a 14-year-old angsty teenager wanting answers and so on. And as soon as they possibly could, my mum and dad were like, look, we've done our bit now. You can go and find your, your real family. We've, we've done what we signed up for. So I ended up leaving home very, very early. Now we're in 1991. I'm 21 years old. I feel like I've got no identity, no family as such. So I wanted to find my biological mother to look for answers and hopefully find a family or or whatever it was that I felt was missing, some kind of roots, some kind of solid safety net, maybe. I wasn't that interested in, in meeting her and having a relationship because I didn't like them. They gave me away. I knew nothing about them except that I was given away as a baby. And I'm, who does that? You know, surely if you give birth to somebody, it's a natural, it's this big euphoric thing that's going to happen. You're instantly going to love this child. Um, so I didn't like them, but I was curious. If you're born before 1976, 75, 76, you have to go through counselling to get your original birth certificates and so on. I did that. And luckily, or strangely, the person who was a social worker at that time that I had to speak to was the same social worker that dealt with my adoption back in the 70s. And she had a chat with me. I said, look, I don't want this big relationship. I'm just curious. She gave me the letter, which I had to go to Stafford then because we didn't have the internet, so we couldn't search things online. You had to physically go to these places. Um, went to Stafford to pick up my birth certificate and I can just remember it as vividly as possible I remember because I was hoping everything that I knew was all just up in the air maybe it's wrong or, or so on so I was hoping that somebody got it wrong and on my birth certificate it would not say that I was Indian because that would mean all these people that were abusing me were white you know I wasn't a nice person I was going to blow something up I had all these character traits maybe I don't know so I opened up that birth certificate and my my whole world just fell apart. I felt like somebody had pulled a trapdoor underneath me because as clear as day it said, Father Indian, his surname was, was Sikh, he was a Sikh. There was no, that's a legal document, there was nothing that could be wrong with that in my head. And so I was even more angry because <laughs> I always clinged on that tiny, tiny hope that maybe it's wrong. Maybe I'm not Indian. Um, so then I thought, right, I want to go and, and, and speak to them and find out why. And I sort of vent to them. Look, this is the life I've had to live because you gave me away. And because I look like this, because you were my father, I've had all these problems. And I was angry. So luckily... For me, Pamela, my biological mother, was still at the same address that was on my birth certificate. Wow. So I got in my Capri back then at the time <laughs> and drove down there and basically staked a house out for a week. I was backwards and forwards every day. Um, I was peering over a back fence to see if a washing was clean and all those kind of things to try and get an image in my head. Because I couldn't imagine my mother being blonde and blue eyed and the exact opposite to what I am. Um, 
And then on a Sunday night, it was about half past ten at night, I'd just washed my hair, hair was dripping wet, and somebody was knocking on my door. And I thought, who's that at this time? Didn't answer it. Because it was bailiffs, maybe, I don't know. Um, and it was my social worker. She put a note through the door saying, if it's you sitting outside Pamela's house, can you let her know? Because the neighbours are going to report you for a suspicious car. Because I didn't know there was a school at the end of the street when somebody had been trying to take kids from this school. So I panicked, thinking, oh, my God, no, I'm not trying to do that. And I went bombing down there and knocked on the door in a, in a panic. She opens the door uh, with one child on her arm, two children behind her. And I said, Pamela. And she said, yes. I said, do you know who I am? She said, yes, but I don't know which one you are. I'm like, well, okay, great. Went in and all that angst and all that anger and questions and frustration that I had all those years, if I meet her, I'm going to do this, this, and shout and scream and how dare you and blah, blah, blah. blah. There was none of that. It just all went out and I was so overwhelmed with the fact that I was looking at somebody with the same bone structure as me the same eye shape the, every, everything was me but with blonde hair and I'd never seen that I'd never grown up with parents that looked like me um so it was very simple questions like, like how are you how are you how was how your family and of course I said oh everything was fine it wasn't but I said everything was fine why did you give me up oh it wasn't me it was Tony I wanted to keep you and blah 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 I knew that I had a sister that was also put up for adoption so I said well if giving me up for adoption was a mistake why did you then give up my biological sister Emma and she said oh, well, I couldn't bear the thought of giving you away and keeping her. So I took that and that was it. So I left. Oh, shall we keep in touch? And yeah, fine. But I didn't know what I wanted then because it was all still very, I didn't know how to feel. And I knew I should have felt something, but I wasn't feeling anything, if that makes sense. So I thought, oh, I'll go and find my biological sister. So all I knew about my sister is her name was... Emma Michelle something and she'd gone to this big posh family in Womburn and that I knew they couldn't have children so they adopted her and two brothers as well so I went into the electoral rolls and I wrote down every single Emma Michelle in the whole of Womburn there was 300 and something 350 I think it was and I went and knocked on every single door some of them were very obvious because they were in their 60s or whatever if somebody wasn't in, I'd knock on the door next door. Does the person that lives next door look a bit like me? And, you know, it was very mad at the time. And then I remember, and it sounds like a film strip, strip script, but it's not. I remember it being the very, very last name on my list. And knocked on the door, nobody was in. So I knocked, it was pouring down away. And I, I knocked next door and I said, is there a girl next door that looks a bit like me? And the guy was like, kind of yeah no I don't oh, I think, oh goodness but she's usually home about half past five so I thought okay I'll wait there's some garages opposite and I waited there and then and I don't know why this is stuck in my head it's very odd um this bright yellow scolder I'll pulled up with all teddy bears on the back seat <laughs> and bear in mind I loved my capri the scolder at that time was like no um 
so she pulled on the drive. I went running over and I said, listen, I know I've probably got the wrong house, but I'm adopted. I'm looking for my sister. Da, da, da. And she's like, no, you've got the wrong house. It's not me. Okay. Sorry to bother you. I jumped back in my Capri. And she just comes running over to me. She says, no, you have found the right house. So we went in and it was like I'd known her my whole life. We looked like twins. We got baby pictures of ourselves out and we was even dressed the same back then. Um, she had only just found out that she was adopted because she was very pale. She had black hair, whereas mine's dark brown. She had very black hair and she was really, really pale, a little bit greyish, whereas I'm, I was very brown. So she was being passed off as white and it wasn't until she looked for her details when she wanted to apply for a passport that she found her adoption certificate so she'd only just found out but she knew her brothers were adopted too and it was great her mum came home and she introduced us oh this is Susan my biological sister her mum wasn't very happy because I think she was worried I'd come to take her away and and so on which was not the case and and that was that and we became so close and she's my only full same with the same father relative and it was just brilliant I had to be a secret for four years because her mum wasn't happy about her seeing me because of you know she thought I was going to take her away she had no interest in in meeting Pamela or Tony our biological parents because she had no void she was absolutely adored and shared with love as a baby um she had no missing link or anything or felt that she needed something whereas I I had the opposite um growing up so but we did meet her and she's like okay I've met her I'm not bothered then we thought we shared a and this is going to sound really bad but it's 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 how it was we shared a we was almost racist ourselves towards Asian people because we thought that would make people believe we weren't Asian to be accepted if, if that makes sense so we're like oh, we should find Tony, we can tell him what we really think of him and blah, 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 which is our biological father. Interestingly, our biological father, Tony's name wasn't on my sister's birth certificate, it was just Pamela, just the mother. And um, we went through all the, the processes, we went through the electoral rolls, we found up the temple, it was very, very difficult to find him because he'd now moved to London. Obviously, he wasn't with Pamela anymore, they split up after me. Um, so he was now married with four kids of his own to another Indian woman that was an arranged marriage and so on, lives in, in London. He drove up, we met him, he didn't want to go anywhere. He wouldn't go to a car for a pub or anything, sit and talk. We had to sit in the back of his car and he just drove around the streets. And I was like, well, can't we go and to a car and sit down and talk properly? He's like, well, no, what do you want? And I'm like, we don't want anything, but you were our biological father. I was your firstborn. I think about my first boyfriend sometimes. Also, have you never thought, Oh, I wonder what she's. I hope she's all right. He's like, no, I, I don't know why. I don't know why you want to see me. I, you know, I've got my own family. You've got yours. We gave you up for somebody else to look after. What, what do you want? And he was really blatant. And I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting a, oh, you know, we were young and you know, perhaps we shouldn't have. There was none of it. He just did not want to know. Didn't want to enter conversations or anything. Um, so 
I said, does your family know about us? He says, me and my wife have got no secrets. I tell her everything. I says, okay, when did you tell her about us? He went, yesterday. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so we didn't want anything from him. I think I just wanted to meet him, to shout at him, to vent my anger because of everything that I went through. But that didn't really get to happen. So he blamed Pamela for everything. She was blaming him. So like, okay, well, let's drive to Pamela's house and we'll get it all out in the open. Not thinking, I haven't seen them each other for 20 odd years. But she came out to the car and I said, so why wasn't your name on my sister's birth certificate? He says, because I'm not her father. And Pamela was like, yes, you are. And he was, no, you were sleeping with everybody. Else. And they were just like two teenagers arguing with each other. And we wasn't getting anywhere. So we left it at that. He went back to London and Pamela, you know, went back in the house. And I didn't see her again until about four months later when the social worker got in touch with me and said that Pamela had got in touch with her, asking to see me. She wants a relationship. And I'm like, why do I want a relationship with somebody that just gave me away? Um, but because I didn't have a, a loving relationship with my parents, I needed something. So I went to see her again and I started seeing her every day. I moved around the corner from her and we were together all of the time. And it was great to a point. She was introducing me to people as, oh, this is my daughter. She'd got four, three other children at this point and my sister, who was adopted out. Um, so everybody's like, oh. I didn't know you had a daughter because she'd had all boys since. Um, so she's like, yeah, she was like really happy, like parading me around like some trophy. But this was this was the the early 90s, so I was modeling, I was earning good money and all that kind of stuff. Um then I met my biological, well, her nephew, my cousin. And I remember him saying, Oh, well, I spent time in a foster home. I thought, oh, there's a little pattern here. And I said to him, and I'm really summarising now, I said to him, well, I'll never call Pamela mum because my mum is the one that brought me up regardless of our relationship. She was there, took me to school my first day. Da, 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 da. So I'll always call Pamela, Pamela, not mum. He went and told her she lost her mind out. She had my car robbed, my house broken into, she had me stabbed, she found out my agency is trying to say I'm registered with loads of different agencies. She completely tried to ruin my life. She just lost her head. Um, and from that day to this, I never saw her again. And then, and obviously I didn't see my biological father. So skip forward, um, through the 90s, noughties and so on. I, was, I still kept a relationship with my mum and dad. I was going to see them weekly. I'd be taking my mum out to dinner or buy everything that was in my mum and dad's house I paid for because um, I'm trying to to make them love me. I'm trying to make them, you know, I am your daughter. You're the only mum and dad essentially that I've got. You've got to love me and so on. They didn't have a lot, so I tried to give them as much as I could that I could. And then... My dad passed 17 years ago now, and my mum became very ill 10 years ago, and she'd become paralysed and waist down and bed-bound. And over the years, me and my mum had had ups and downs, and it was very clear that we weren't close. She wasn't very nice at all. 
Um, but she always made me to believe that I had to be grateful that she rescued me. So when she became ill, she was, look, I rescued you as a child. You've got to look after me now. And I felt I had to pay back. And it, I, I, I did feel grateful because after meeting my biological mother, she had different kids of different fathers. She lived in a council house on a not very nice estate. She had tattoos. She had this, that, and that. She was, you know, and if, I think that if I was brought up by her, then that's how I would be as well. Um, so I did feel grateful to a point. Um, but she she really hammered that point home. You have to, it's your duty and da 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 da, da. Whenever we had arguments, the first thing she'd say, well, you're not exactly family. And it, just, it was just like daggers to the heart when things like that would be said because it was an instant disarming mechanism from her for me because I couldn't defend that. And um, so I, I, I ended up back in therapy because my mum was so horrible to me. But I had this sense of duty. And my therapist said to me, sorry, but you don't owe her anything. You can walk away. I thought, I can't, I can't do that. She 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 did rescue me, you know, and it it was awful. I was always like, oh, I must have that many nervous breakdowns because of all this kind of thing. Um, she passed uh, three years ago now, and I don't know if you've got your parents out, but when you lose your parents, you immediately feel like an orphan, no matter how old you are. Um, and I'm 53 now, and you immediately feel foundationless. So I needed something. I thought, okay, I'll reach back out to my biological mother. It's now 30 years on to when she tried to ruin me. Um, we're older now, I'm not going to have a close relationship again, but just to be able to send a Christmas card or the odd text, how are you, how are you? I'd kept in touch with my biological brother on and off over the years, and I said to him, do you think Pamela would want to see me? He said, what do you want? I said, I don't want anything, just to be able to have a cup of coffee or, you know. He says, well, I can ask, but she's got nothing to offer you. I said, I don't, I don't want it, I just feel like I need some footing um and then the night before my mum's funeral I'm sitting at the kitchen table writing the the speech that I'm going to give at the, the the creme and my brother's wife called me and told me that Pamela had passed away that night and I don't know why I still can't really understand it Al but I just I just fell to the floor. I just completely broke down. I hadn't had a relationship with this woman for 30 years. And the fact that I lost my mum and then my biological, I, I just, I don't know what it was. I, I don't know what it was, but I was just a mess. Um, and then obviously it was my mum's funeral the next day. I went over to see my brother the day after that. She, he had Pamela's handbag. And he gave it to me, and inside there was a photograph of me that she had carried for all these 30 years, and all the newspaper cuttings of things that I'd done over the time. So it showed me that she really did probably feel something for me, but her stubbornness was like, no, I don't. Maybe she was hurt, but I don't know. But it just showed me that there might have been some chance of a relationship if only I'd have 
held out an olive branch earlier or something, but I was the one that was wronged and I didn't feel, you know. So then I thought, okay, maybe if I reach back out to Tony, my biological father, maybe he's mellowed because he'll be in his 70s now. So maybe he's now thinking, oh, I wonder how my firstborn was. So I went to try and find him. He changed his name that many times. It was a nightmare to find, but I got there. In the end, my partner was saying to me, just send him a letter. I'm like, no, I don't want to send him a letter. I don't want to give him forewarning. I want to see his face. And I get that instant reaction. But this time I'm prepared for him to say, no, I don't want to know. I wasn't prepared the first time. So went down there. He still lives in London. Um, he lived at the end of a this at this massive house. And knocked on the door and this young girl answered, who looked about 26, so I thought, oh, maybe that's his granddaughter. And I said, is Tony, Tony, no, Tony, is, Tony is the English name for him, because a lot of Asians, I think they have their Asian name, but they have an English name as well, and Tony's his English name. So I said, is Tony? And she was, looked at me all confused. She's Tony. And I thought, well, maybe he doesn't use that anymore. And I said, you know, Jazz Want, which was his proper name. And she says, no, he's, he's at work, but my mum's here, his wife. And I went, oh, my God, so you're his daughter? He's still having sex in his 70s? That's all I could think of. But obviously that wasn't the case. Um, so she went and got her. She came and she says, no, he's not here. Can I help you? I went, oh, no, I'm just, uh, my father knew him from when he had the shop back in Wolverhampton. Um, I didn't want to say my real name. I said my name is Lisa, I think because Susan was the name that he gave me. And there's not many Susans about these days, so it might have tweaked. So I said, oh, no, my name's Lisa. Uh, oh, do you want to come in? I went, no, 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 it's fine. Um, I'll wait for him to come. She said, well, I don't know what time he's going to be back. I said, that's all right, I'll wait. And I will off there when I sat in the car. Then I thought, oh, I should have gone in, because then I hopefully can see some pictures on the wall of what he looks like and see what kind of house it is, or is it clean, all the daft things that you think about. So I went and knocked on the door again. I thought I missed an opportunity there. And I said, oh, I will come in. I invited myself and um, went in and had a cup of tea. And they said, oh, do you want Indian tea or English tea? I went, oh, I've never had an Indian tea because I didn't want to give anything away. So I went, yeah, I'll have one of those. And I started boiling water in a, in a saucepan. I'm like, blind me, hang on. You've got a kettle there. Why are you still boiling? Bo- bo- it was very odd, but that's how they make it apparently. And it was lovely, to be honest with you, not spicy at all. And then I thought, well, I need to get, I need to find out what kind of person he is. And I said to the daughter, I said, do you mind if I speak to your mum, you know, alone? She said, yeah, that's fine, no problem. Went out the room, because I wasn't there to cause trouble. Went out the room and I said to his wife, do you know who I am? She said, yes, yes, I know, what do you want? I went, no, do you know, do you know that I'm Tony's? daughter she said yes I know but why are you here and I said well I just want to see him just you know is he all right and she said yes he's fine he's a very strong man and blah 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 what do you want I said I don't I don't want anything um she's I said I'm not here to cause any trouble I don't be coming for Sunday dinners I don't want to be part of the family I just want to say hello I've lost my parents and you know he might have thought about me over the years and no, no, he hasn't thought about you. And she was very dismissive. 
And well, how is he? Is he in good, yes, he's in good health. This is this big house, is our house. Those cars out there is her car. My one son is a pilot, and the brother in law is a solicitor, very, very big solicitor. Trying to show me that they've got all this stuff. I think it was almost to make me be a bit scared and, and like you don't belong in this family. We've got all that you're nothing to us. Um, so I was trying to ignore all our signals and I was just trying to be very polite and keep everything light. Well, you know, she's a nice house and oh, it looks like you've got a big garden. And But I was boiling up inside because she was like, if you was happy, you wouldn't be here. That's what she said. I said, no, that's I'm not here for any. And she just couldn't get it. She just wanted me to push me under the carpet. But he doesn't want to see you. I said, you don't know that. He doesn't even know I'm here. Um, but now he's told me over the years and blah, blah, blah. It, and it was awful. She was just being, oh, you're here to destroy us. I'm not here to destroy. She was just being awful. Um, and I tried to pad it out as much as I can for over an hour. And I was running out of patience and I was getting frustrated because she was just trying to get rid of me like I was nothing. Just bush me under the carpet. I went, look, OK, I'm going to go. Um, but I'll go and wait in the car and uh, she'll just give me a number and I'll give it to him. So I wrote it down and I didn't trust that she would give it to me. And I understand maybe if I was in that situation, somebody from the past come, I've got my nice, wonderful life and somebody could disrupt it or, or something. So I get it. But she was being really horrible and making me feel like dirt. And I was that angry and frustrated. My blood was boiling because she couldn't understand why I was there. And I know this isn't right out. But I was so frustrated at the time. As I came walking out to the front door, next to the front door was the living room. And I could see the daughter still sitting in there on a laptop. And I thought, this is one of those occasions that I now don't care. I'm, I'm now upset because you're making me feel like nothing. And I'm 53. I'm just a girl looking for a dad. So I said... And I need to start a conversation. I said as I left, okay, well, if you could, if you could give him uh, my number, because at the end of the day, you are my my stepmom. And I said it loud in the hope that she could hear and left. And I thought, okay, hopefully that will start a conversation that will make me come back. Maybe I was just grasping at straws. I know it wasn't probably the right thing to do. When I sat in the car with my partner and I was, I just said, I just cried and I just says, she's made me feel, how dare she make me feel like this, like I'm nothing and, you know. So we went to Marston's, had a cup of tea and I thought, I can't just leave it like that. My partner was, look, we'll come another day, just send him a letter. I'm like, no, I'm here now, I'm not leaving without some kind of conclusion. I needed an ending, I needed an answer. So I've got a card, wrote all my details in there. I thought, I'm going to leave it outside so when he does come back from work, because uh, it's now like night time. When you just come back from work, he can see it. I'm not going to trust pushing it through the letterbox for her to take it and rip it up. But when I got back, there was another car there, and I thought, oh, maybe other family members have come, and this conversation had started. And um, as I went to get out the car to go and leave this card, I saw people getting into the car and coming up the, the cul-de-sac, and it was a boy and the two little children that I could see in the house so I th that was his son they must drop off their kids for them to look after whilst at work so I stopped the car as it come up the drive I said is Jazz want back and he says no no he's not back yet he should be back soon I went oh okay fine I'll wait in the car and he drove off and I thought 
Well, that was odd. If somebody was asking me where my I'd ask questions. So I didn't think anything else. And then I saw somebody else jump in another car, which was the wife and one of the other sons. They drove out. I'm like, okay, well, if that's the mom, the wife that had drove out, that means the daughter's in the house on her own. I thought, right, I'm going for it. Knocked on the door again. I said, look, um, did your mom tell you who I am? She says, no, you was just some friend of, of my father's or something. I said, well, I've got this card with my details in. Um, can you let him have it if he wants to contact me? She went, yeah, yeah, that's fine. She was lovely. This young girl, she's very well-rounded, friendly, open, everything. And again, I know this wasn't right. And I certainly don't conduct or anything like that, but I thought it's now or never. It was one of those sliding doors moments out there. You can either go one way or the other. And I didn't care anymore because I was made to feel so rubbish. And I said, right, it's like everything could slow down into slow motion. I says, I am really sorry to do this to you. But your father is my father I was his first child she didn't change anything on her face she was completely emotionless and she just looked at me and said my heart was pounding she was looking looked at me and said if that's true you've dodged a bullet and I was like oh my god out of everything I was not excited what what do you mean she says he's a horrible person he's a vile horrible nasty person and I just started crying again because I thought, okay, my biological mother wasn't a very nice person. And now my biological father's not a very nice person. So that must mean that I'm not a very, because you, you made genetically, maybe I'm not a, a nice person. That's the big like, cloud of doom just come all over me. And I got some pictures up of my phone of, of Tony and Pamela's wedding and I showed her. She went, oh my God, it's true. <laughs> of course it's true who's going to knock on your door and say she went this is gold dust she says because he's so horrible he's on such a pedestal in the community in the family everybody looks up to him if anybody's got any problems they all come to Tony and and he's this big king but this shows that actually he isn't the person that a lot people think he is she wouldn't want to come in I went yes please and uh, I said have you got a picture of him I can see and she showed me all these pictures and I'm like oh my god and I, I showed him the divorce papers it was on the divorce papers he had put that Pamela wouldn't cook his tea for him and I think she says that's exactly what he's like now he says he comes in from work he taps the table for my mom to go run in and make the dinner and put it in front of him she says he's exactly like that she says why just sit go and sit in the dining room and wait for him to come back I'm like yes I will. Thank you. This is now almost midnight. And um, she was wonderful. She said, what, I said, I don't want to destroy it. I don't want to be part. Of, I just want to see him and give him the opportunity there now to say, yeah, it was a mistake. Or I've thought about your something. I don't want it to cause any disruption. She was, OK, that's fine. Um, but she was telling me, you know, how horrible a person he was. Then the door went. And um, it was the mother coming up. They'd been shopping. It was the mother come back. And she, and this is going to sound awful, but she looked at me as if to say, F -f -f. and I, I must have looked so smug, Al, because I was like, yes, I've made it back in, into the house. Um, and then all I could hear in the kitchen, she was talking in Indian really angrily. And um, I 
presuming she was on the phone to Tony because you could hear like the muffled voice. Emily came in and sat with me and then the mother came in and she says, what do you want? I said, I don't want anything. You are, you're going to destroy, you're going to destroy. And I said, look, Emily knows I've told she see, you want to come and I said, no, but I, I don't. And, and she was saying, look, mom, you've got to understand it's her father too. She, of course, she's going to want to see him. She says, what would be the best case scenario for you? I says, just for him to say, I have thought about you and how are you? That is it. That's all, all I want. And maybe send a Father's Day card once a year. That's it. She, the mother was like, no, you're going to destroy. You're going to destroy us. I says, honestly, honestly, I really am not. He doesn't want to see you. But you don't know that. He might just tell you that. He might not feel like that deep down. And Emily said, he hasn't got a deep down. He's not that person. So I'm like, well, it's okay. And this was going on and on and on. I thought, okay, I'm going to go. Because I was that worn down and mentally drained, emotionally drained. And I picked up my phone and my keys. And I said, right, okay, I'm going to go. I felt just was defeated. And then there was a key in the door. This is now one o'clock in the morning. And it was Tony. And everything just went silent. And the, I think the mother was like, I almost had a going. Um, and he just walked in, big smile on his face. And he said, hello. And I said, hello. And he said, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? And he just had this big, lovely, warm smile. And he came and he sat down. And Emily says, come on, mum, let's let's leave them to it. And she didn't want to, but she was like, she was fuming. And they left. And it was very polite and lovely. And I'm okay. The first thing he said to me, Al, that was, how's Linda? And I said, do you mean Pamela? Yes, yes, Pamela, that's what I meant. And I'm thinking, you, Linda? was the woman he was having an affair with behind Pamela's back, who he also had a child with, but he doesn't know that. And it's not my place to tell him. So I said, you mean, Pat? He says, yeah, showed him the wedding pictures. I haven't seen those before. And it was all very lovely. What do you do for a job? And told him about my partner. He said, I'll get your partner to come in. And he came and dropped something to eat. It was lovely. So then I'm thinking, hold on. I'm being told you're horrible, but you're presenting yourself wonderfully you've got a big smile and you know your kind eyes and all those kind of things so maybe Emily was lying to me to try and put me off or I don't know who's the, the real one so there's only one way to find out and I said okay so have you have you thought about me you know now you're getting older and you know over the years and he was like no not really and I'm like oh god okay but I was prepared this time and I don't know if at that moment I admired him a little bit because he could have just pacified me and said, oh, yeah, I wondered how you are. But he didn't. He told the truth. So I'm like, right, OK. And then we was talking for about an hour. I said, OK, it's late. I'm going to leave you. I'm going to go. Would you like to stay in touch? He said, yes. He said, shall we have a picture taken? So we had a few picture taken and it was great. As I left, I gave him a hug, um, saw the mother at the door, gave her a hug. Unwillingly, but I did. I said, if Emily's around, can you tell her, you know, I said, bye. Oh, she's gone to bed. She's asleep. But then Emily comes running down and goes, no, I'm here. And I hugged me. I went, oh, it was lovely to meet you. And, and we left. And I sat back in the car and drove back to the Midlands. And 
I didn't feel anything. I think it was almost like a, sh- a shock because the whole day had been such an emotional roller coaster. And I was, my partner said to me, I think you've had a good result there because you wasn't expecting to see him in the end. And now you have. So even if you never see him again, at least you've you've done that and you've given him the opportunity. I said, right, well, okay. Next morning, I got up. My partner very kindly said to me, I'm going to take you out for the day. We went to Bournemouth Water. At 11 o'clock in the morning, my phone's ringing and it's Tony because we swapped numbers. It's Tony and I'm just looking at my phone because I wasn't expecting to go, oh, he's ringing. I don't, what does he want? I don't know what to say. And I didn't answer it because I panicked and my partner said, just ring him back. He might, you know, and I did. And he said, oh, I just felt guilty. You know, you left, you didn't have anything to it. I wanted to make sure you got back out car. And yes, I did. That's fine. Don't feel guilty. It's fine. It was lovely to meet you. Um, would you like to stay in touch? He said, yes, yes, yes. He says, where are you? I says, I'm in Boughton on the boat. And then it clicked then. I think he thought, in case I'm around the corner again from his house, he wanted to make sure I was far away. And um, and it, we just left it at that. I sent him the pictures that we took on my phone. And that was it. I haven't seen him since. But luckily, the daughter kept in touch with me. And I've seen her four times, but she comes up here. She doesn't let me go down there. And she still tells me that Tony keeps saying, why are you keeping in touch with her? She's not going to benefit this family. I don't understand why you want a relationship. But she's she's got all brothers and she says, I want a relationship with you. You're my big sister. You're the first. I want you to come to my wedding. I said, look, I don't want you. I understand if having a relationship with me is going to cause you problems. I get it. I'm not happy about it, but, you know, I understand if you, if you don't feel you can keep in touch with me. She's like, no, I'm, she's very headstrong. She's like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to. Um, but I haven't seen Tony since. I've sent him a couple of text messages over the this year because this all happened recently. Um, I don't think he really wants to keep in touch with me, but maybe just the odd message of how are you and, and that's it. But it's me reaching out to him. And that's where I am. It's really interesting in terms of, you know, you've given a really, really clear account of that experience. And having read some of the book, confessed to not reading all, because it's a very big book, but actually it's a really, really good book, both of them, Um, in terms of your experience and kind of the emphasis on what it's like to grow up as a, you know, as a brown child in the 70s. Um, But I was really struck by something I did read in one of your books. And I think it kind of maybe it... Because you, you having read the book, you've skimmed over quite a lot of yeah. pretty blooming awful experiences in terms of your your home life and childhood and you know all of that. But you say, I feel like I've lived my life chasing love. It is not for it is not enough for someone to care about me. I need to know that the people in my life are here for the long term. And then um, you say a little bit later, um, occasionally it feels the minute someone knows you're adopted, you become almost transparent less of a person, you've got a chink in your armour, damaged, or you have already been prejudiced that you are not worthy of being a full human with a full heart and a full soul. And it feels like, you know, you, you, and that's really profound. And one of the, the phrases you kept sort of saying or, or recounting from the people who you met along your journey, they keep saying, what do you want? Yeah. Like you're, what do you want? And like, they're sort of, they're laying something onto you that's not, it's just not there. And that they're, they're, even that they're questioning that, you know, your, your, you know, your, your biological mum, your biological dad, their family members all saying, what do you want? And it seems mad to step outside and go, well, it's obvious what she wants. 
yeah, love, acceptance, acknowledgement. Um, I, I always say, people ask what you do for a living, your marital status and who you are, your identity, so they know how much respect to give you. So the minute somebody knows or, or I tell them that I'm adopted, their face changes and sometimes it's like a, oh, are you? Like you're some young child reaching up with the hands that, you know, that we all saw during live aid days and so on. Or some people have said, well, what was wrong with you? Nothing, <laughs> nothing was wrong. With, you know, everything changed, their demeanour changed. Some people don't continue a conversation because they don't know what to say. People talk about adoption these days much more than what they did back then. and. When people think about, and I'm, I'm, I'm challenging this every day at the moment, people think of children that are in care or fostered or adopted. When they're young, they're like, oh, bless them in that home. Nobody was given away. Nobody loved them, whatever. When they become teenagers, well, there must be trouble. I bet they could, you know, they could like a whole different perspective. I did the first book mainly. I had to come out to people because I lived my life pretending I was anything else than Indian. So I've got no children, never been married. So I needed a legacy. I needed so many people say to me, we can't work you out, Susan. So I thought, right, I'll do a book. Because people have said to me yeah, over the years, probably, you know, as you know, oh, you should write a book, you should write a book. Um, and the opportunity came up again last year. So I did. But I wanted it to be about why I've never had a curry, why I don't wear flower dresses, why I don't put plaits in my hair, you know, just to distance myself from that. And then because of the feedback from that, somebody said to me, and this was the cook, somebody said, well, if you have a, a child that's been in care or fostered or adopted in your house, you expect them to burn your house down. I'm not a violent person, Al, but I've never wanted to punch someone in the face so much in all my life I said really is that why you 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 clearly aren't in 99.9 percent .9 of the children that are in care are there through no fault of their own no they were just born out I was given away I was just born you know at three months old I was given away I hadn't done anything wrong same with a lot of these these kids and I thought if that's the perception that a lot of people have and I thought right We've all seen the long lost families and they all lived happily ever after and went off into the sunset. That's not always the case. And people forget that those shows are entertainment shows because people want the happy ever after. They want the nice fluffy endings for the most part. Um, so I thought, right, you hear people talking about adoption from, uh, oh, we couldn't have children, so we adopted. Oh, we've got all this love to give, so we adopted. You very rarely hear from an adoptee's point of view and how it feels to be adopted. Just because we're put into a family, um, we're not automatically feel like, that's it, you're my mum and dad and we, we're connected. And because it says on that piece of paper, this is your mum and dad. Um, it's much more than that. And so I, thought I need to I need to write another book from how it fit from an adoptee perspective. I wanted to get on my records from when I was in the children's song. So I wanted to compare with how I felt to how the social workers thought I was feeling mm -hmm. in that comparison. And people think once you you're adopted, right back in the 70s, right, there's your family, that's one off the list onto the next. It's much better now. There's still a long way to go, like I said, but they think, right, there's your family, you're fixed. <laughs> that's one off the off the pile. And it's 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 not as easy as that. You don't in, it's like when you get 
married an arranged marriage maybe you don't instantly right you're my husband I'll love you for the rest of your life it's, it's not a quick fix it's there's a lot of emotion and, and trauma you have to unpack and, and blah 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 and we don't want people to oh we've got all this love we will just love you and give you a nice nice roof over your head you've got to you've got to meet us where we are just because you are giving us what you think we want that doesn't mean that's where we are yes we do want those things but you've got to meet us emotionally mentally and I now give talks as part of the adoption process for the council in, in Wolverhampton to give it the perspective of an adoptee and the feedback I get is just unbelievable and because we do a question and answer and so on after and people very rarely take into account how the child feels they think because they've got somewhere warm and wonderful to live and you're loving them we're all fixed they forget that that child may have been to two, three, four different houses. They might have been abused. They might, but this is your family now. And then two weeks later, you've moved on. And what this is your fa- so that word family and what it means dilutes a, a little bit. So I haven't had children, and I would love to, but I don't know. I don't recognise that unconditional, invisible thread that I talk about in my book. That we've never had that. Oh, you look just like your mom, or oh, you, you this, this is just like and that when you've been naughty or something's wrong. Then they're there because you've got that unconditional love, and I don't know what that is. I don't know how to recognise that. And just because somebody's adopted, they do want to find their biological family because we have curiosities, but that doesn't mean we love you less. It's just a nat- natural thing, and and adopting somebody isn't. Just a job, okay, you're 16 now, that's our bit done. <laughs> and it, it, it's much more than that. And, you know, you can't train somebody to genuinely love you, to have that unconditional love. There's a lot more support now with adoption, Al, than there's ever been. There's a long way to go, and nobody's ever truly been able to give me a definitive answer as to where I should have been placed or other people that are trans I should be, be placed. And I don't like this term because I'm a full person, but I'm half Indian and half English. So do I go with an, an Asian family or do I go with a white? Because one way or the other, I'm missing out. But that being said, because they do say to me, we look for somebody of colour with the wider family. But if you'd have come to me when I was a teenager or eight, nine, ten years old, when being Indian was a negative, horrible, dirty word, if somebody had come to me saying, Oh, let's go and explore that side of you. I would, I would have fought hammer and nail. I didn't want to know because it was too negative. So I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the answer. I do know that if somebody adopts somebody of a different ethnicity, then they need support with that. Even when it comes down to, you know, learning how to do the hair, if they've got Afro hair and all those kind of things. So I don't know what the answer is. Is to as to which side I should have gone with. If I'd have been brought up in an Asian family, my, my life would have been completely different. I don't know if it would have been better or worse, but it would have been completely different because I would have been with other people that looked like me who could have said to me, well, listen, you may experience somebody calling you this or that, or you may have people saying this, uh, this is how you deal with it. I would have had that, but I didn't. Susan, you've given us so much to think about and um, you've been so open and honest. I know it's, I know that telling your story isn't easy. Um, I would really encourage people to go and read your book because I think 
it gives a window into your internal world and you're in, you're not just your physical journey, but your internal journey as you've sort of navigated all of these hurdles and pitfalls and snares. So I just want to thank you so much for being so open and honest. I'll put the details of where people can find your books and find out a bit more about you and the work that you do now, because you're, um, you know, you're on radio and all kinds of exciting things. Um, but I just want to thank you so much for your time and uh, wish you well in your future. Thank you. Al. Can I just share one very quick thing with you? Yeah, yeah. When I when I give my talks, there are some people, if they've not gone through certain experiences themselves, they don't really understand words. Some people can only understand a visual. So I have a visual postcard that I give to everybody. And you've probably seen this, but I like sculptures. My favourite statue is the Hans Christian Andersen one that's in New York in, in Central Park. But I saw this statue and it just struck me like a lightning bolt. And I thought, I'm going to put it on postcards and I'm going to give it to all these adopted families that I talk to. And it's in Geneva, in Switzerland. I've never seen it in real life, but I would love to visit it. And it's this. That is how it feels to be adopted. You have this big hole inside of you. It's it's supposed to be it's called melancholy and it's supposed to symbolize what grief feels like. And you it is like a grief that you you feel because you're grieving something you haven't had, you're grieving your biological family. I just thought for people who are visual, then that's the best thing that I can show on them. Do you well, understand that? Yeah, I know I, I mean I totally get it, and I think people will be probably be familiar with it. But what I'll do is I'll try and get a copy of that and put it into the um the show notes so people can see that and I'll work out how I get that done. But Susan, thank you so much thank for being so, so open much. and so honest. And I hope well, I wish you'll look after yourself. And thank you so much for the work that you do too. We you know, we need a few more of you. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>